Amen. What a beautiful song. and What a great truth that is, that God's ways are higher than our ways. I'm glad for that, aren't you? That's a blessing. Well, good to see you tonight, as Pastor said, and I know it encourages his heart, but it makes the Lord happy as well uh, to see you being faithful in God's house uh, during these summer months and revival meetings. I'm so thankful for you and uh, trust the service has already been an encouragement, a blessing to you. Well, take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Luke, chapter 22, Gospel of Luke and chapter 22 tonight. Look at a few verses here as kind of a launching place. And we're going to primarily focus on the life of a man named Peter tonight. And I love Peter in the Bible. He's a great example of uh, both positive and negative. And all of us have strengths and weaknesses. And uh, Peter exhibits both. And uh, we can learn from his life, I believe, in a great way. But Luke chapter 22, let's begin reading with verse 31 and read just a few verses. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee, that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Did you know that the devil knows us better than we know ourselves? Now, after you live for a while, you kind of have yourself figured out, right? You kind of know what you like, what you dislike, who you like, who you don't like to be around. You, you understand some of your moods and some of your swings of emotion, and and uh, you kind of get a pretty good handle of your personality and how you react and how you act in certain situations. You think you know yourself pretty well. But the devil observes us as well, and he understands what we're all about. The Bible tells us we're not to be ignorant of his devices. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. That word devour there has the idea of making to disappear. Now, now the devil doesn't have a magic wand that he can wave over us and make us vanish into thin air. But the devil wants our testimony to disappear. He wants our testimony, our impact on others to disappear. In other words, he doesn't want us as a Christian to have any impact on those around us. As parents, he doesn't want us to affect our children. As neighbors, he doesn't want us to be a witness to our neighbor. Uh, on the job or amongst our relatives, the devil doesn't want our testimony to impact someone else. So the devil is constantly searching for ways to cause our impact as a Christian to disappear or to be devoured. Now, we might think, well, I, I don't know the devil's going to bother me too much. I mean, I'm a Christian and I love the Lord and I'm in church on a Monday night in a revival meeting in the middle of the summer when I could be doing a hundred other things. I mean, I think I'm pretty secure in the Lord and, and, and I don't think I have too much to worry about. Well, be careful because the minute we think we stand, the Bible says we're going to fall. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before fall. You say, yeah, but 
I'm pretty grounded in the word of God and I've been in church a long time and I've been saved for a number of years. And if the devil does attack me, I think I'll be able to withstand his fiery darts. I think I'll be able to withstand any anything that he might bring my way. Well, be careful because our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? We might think we're strong and we might think that we can win that battle, but but we got to be careful. We might say, well, yeah, but if the devil does knock me down, if he does, you know, get the best of me, I'll get back up. I mean, I'll recover. I, I, I've been through some of this before, and, and, and the devil won't keep me down for long. Be careful. There was an Old Testament man by the name of Samson. You remember him? Samson had the Spirit of God upon his life even before he was born. God had designed him to be the judge over Israel that would deliver his people from the enemy, the Philistines. And and Samson was placed under a Nazarite vow, a very special vow that God placed upon his life. But Samson got careless with that vow. He began to really didn't, he didn't think it was all that important. He touched the carcass of a dead lion one day because he was hungry. There was a, the bees had made some honey in the carcass of this lion and, and he fulfilled his appetite by touching that dead animal. Well, that was a violation of the Nazarite vow. Samson got loose with his morals. He, 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 he lusted after these, these harlots and the woman at Timnath and later Delilah. And, and Samson got entrapped in some of that lust of the flesh. And, and yet Samson's doing these amazing things. I mean, Samson had this unique strength that nobody knew where it originated from. He was a man that I don't think was was overbearing physically. I don't think he looked like Atlas. I don't think he had muscles rippling all over his body because nobody could figure out where he got his strength. But Samson did some amazing things. I mean, one day he, he took a lion and ripped it in half with his bare hands. I don't know what would possess a person to even try that. But what an amazing strength God had given to him. One day he caught 300 foxes and tied their tails together and and set them on fire and sent them through the Philistines' cornfields and burned all their crops. One day they tied his arms to the gate of the city. And Samson just let them do it. You know, they tied him to the gate of the city and they left. And Samson, after they left, got up and walked away with the gate. I mean, Samson had this amazing strength. But one day Samson was awakened to the voice of Delilah who said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson, the Philistines be upon thee. And Samson opened his eyes and saw the locks of his hair on the floor. Another violation of the Nazarite vow as he had shared that secret with this Philistine woman, Delilah, who now had shorn his head. The Bible says there in verse 20 of chapter 16 that Samson arose and shook himself. And he said, I will go out as at other times before. In other words, Samson thought, yeah, yeah, I blew it. I messed up, but but I'll be okay. I'll go out as at other times. I'll conquer this. But the rest of that verse says he wist not that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. We must be careful because the devil will attack and attack and attack and wear us down and down and down. Until he makes our testimony disappear. Now, in the life of Peter, it seems that Satan has some favorite tactics. 
that he uses on Peter that I think all of us can identify with tonight. And perhaps as we can discover some things from the scriptures about Peter and these devices that Satan uses, we can get some help for our lives. So first notice this attack of Satan upon Peter. The devil will heighten our fears. Now, fear is a common emotion. We've been given this emotion of fear. We all have it. And if we were honest and went around the room tonight, we would all have to admit that there are certain things that frighten us. There are certain things that we fear. I'll start. I don't like snakes. I hate snakes. I had a bad experience as a little boy with a snake, and I I just I don't want to be around snakes. Last week in Virginia at that camp, they, they had snakes in the water where the kids were swimming. They had snakes under the porch where I was staying. There were snakes everywhere. I, I hate snakes. Now, people say, well, Brother Gatch, that's not a poisonous snake. I'm not hanging around long enough to find out if it is or isn't. I just I do not like snakes. I just have a fear they they, they scare me. I, I don't like them. I, I don't like snakes. You, you may have a different fear. You may love snakes. I don't know. But you might have a fear of heights or you might have a fear of darkness or closed in spaces. They, they do these surveys about every year about what people are afraid of. And, 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 and every year, the number one fear that people have is public speaking. People are afraid to get up in front of a crowd and give a speech. In fact, in the last several surveys, death has come in third. So some people would rather die than give a speech, I guess, you know, but, but we all have these fears. Now, the devil likes to heighten those fears. And I think Peter, if we observe his life a little bit in the Bible, we would find that Peter had a fear of what other people thought. It seems like Peter was bold. He had great faith. He, he, he stepped out to serve God. But, but there was this, this fear in Peter's life about what people were thinking. In fact, back in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had to say to Peter one day in verse 23, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Here in this text, in this context, a little bit later, uh, Jesus is betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He's taken off to the judgment hall, and the disciples kind of follow afar off, and Peter makes his way a little bit close to this trial, and he sees some people warming themselves by a fire. And Peter joins himself there and begins to warm his hands, and as he does, a little girl says, Hey, weren't you with him? He said, No, I don't, I don't know anything about that. A little while later, another said, uh, hey, weren't you that man's disciple? He said, no, I don't know the man. After a little while, another teenage girl says, your your speech betrayeth thee. You're one of his disciples. And Peter began to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man. Right here in our text, he said, I'll die for you, but I'll never deny you. And yet here, just a short time later, he succumbs to the fear. You see, the devil will heighten our fears. And today we live in a world that seems to be under a pressure of fear. Whether it's our health, whether it's our finances, whether it's our relationships, there just seems to be a fear that grips the heart of so many people. And oftentimes that fear prohibits us from taking that next step for God. There are many people that are afraid to get saved 
because of what somebody might say or what somebody might do. But remember, the fear of man bringeth a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made safe. Many seek the ruler's favor, but every man's judgment cometh from the Lord. I often say this, your friends can laugh you out of heaven, but they'll never laugh you out of hell. Someone could laugh at you and as a result keep you from getting saved and laugh you right out of heaven, but no one will laugh you out of hell. Yet we have these fears of of taking that step, even of salvation. After we get saved, sometimes there's a hesitancy to to take that step of obedience, of baptism, or, or joining a church, or beginning to tithe, or beginning to witness. Why? Because we're afraid of what somebody might say or somebody might do to us. Remember, whenever there's a fear to do what is right, that fear is not coming from God. Because 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You see, 1 John 4.18 says, there's no fear in love because perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. There's only one perfect love, and that's God's love, and God's perfect love casteth out fear. That's why Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, I am with thee, be not dismayed, I am thy God, I will strengthen thee, I will help thee, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. The devil will heighten our fears. Notice, secondly, he will highlight our faults. If Peter had a besetting sin, if Peter had a sin that kept coming back over and over again. I would have to say that Peter had this this tendency to be impetuous. Peter was the kind of person that would step into the street and then look both ways. (laughs) Peter was the kind of guy that would open his mouth and then he would think about what he just said. He would often respond out of kind of an impetuousness, out of a reaction, without really thinking the situation through. That fault comes back over and over and over again in his life. Again, in the context of Luke chapter 22, as Jesus is betrayed, the soldiers come to the garden with Judas Iscariot, and Judas plants that betrayal kiss. And what does Peter do? He pulls out his sword and takes a swipe at Malchus and cuts off his ear. That impetuous response got him in trouble. Jesus had to say, Simon, put your sword up. They that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And he touched Malchus's ear and healed him. Peter was the kind that was quick to respond without really thinking. All of us tonight, if we're honest, have one of those kinds of sins. And the devil will highlight it just at the moment we need to be a good testimony. Maybe you have a tendency to get angry quickly. It's hard to control your temper. Things upset you or something happens and, and, and it's easy for you just to kind of respond or react in a, in a negative way or a hurtful way or, or, or maybe in an ungodly way. And you know when that'll happen? When there's somebody not saved around or when your children are around. You see, the devil will highlight our faults. If we only sinned when we were by ourselves, then we could just get it right with God and it would be taken care of. But the devil makes sure that we fall to these besetting sins when there are other people watching our testimony. And it hurts the cause of Christ. 
Are we good at dealing with our sin? Are we good at confessing sin and keeping a short account with God? Now, again, we could have the tendency to think, well, I I can't remember the last time I sinned. I, I, I think I'm living pretty good lately. Well, the Bible says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we got to admit the fact that we have sin. We, we have an old flesh. We have an old nature. We're going to succumb to that sin. But we need to confess that sin and make it right immediately. Keep a short account with God. Otherwise, the devil is going to highlight that fault when we need to be a testimony. Get good at confessing sin. Jesus told the story of two men going up into the temple to pray. The one was a Pharisee. He stood and prayed thus with himself. I thank thee, O Father, that I'm not like other men are. Extortioners, adulterers, or even as this uh, publican. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. It's interesting that Jesus said he stood and prayed thus with himself. His prayers weren't going any higher than the top of his head. He was praying with himself. But the publican stood afar off. Lift not his eyes unto heaven, but said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, that man went down unto his house justified rather than the other. For he that exalteth himself should be abased. But he that humbleth himself should be exalted. Know how we need to find that time in our life when sin begins to come in, when sin takes over our life, that we're willing to repent of that sin, to turn from that sin, to get forgiveness from that sin. Years ago, there was a young preacher who was just starting out in ministry and and he was enjoying his pastorate and uh, seeing God bless in many ways. One day he got a call from uh, another church and they asked him to come and preach at, a, at, a, at, a, at a, a preacher's meeting. Well, he didn't feel like he was ready for that. He, he was just getting started himself, but he was honored that they, they asked him. And, and uh, he, he had told the Lord when God called him to preach that he would do so at every opportunity. And so he, he prayed about it for a while and he, he accepted the invitation. He began to work on a message that he would preach at this conference for preachers. And, and uh, he got to the meeting and he found out he was not the only preacher. There was another preacher preaching with him in that conference. His name was John R. Rice. Well, John R. Rice at that time was a very successful and veteran evangelist. Dr. Rice had traveled all over the world and had preached thousands of revivals and had written books about prayer and revival in the home and had been married for many years and raised six daughters to love the Lord. And Dr. Rice had written all these books. And and this poor preacher, he thought, what am I doing? I can't be on the same pulpit with Dr. Rice. But he had agreed to come and, and so... The first night, they both preached, and God gave his grace, and the young preacher, he he did the best he could, and Dr. Rice preached, and God blessed the meeting. Well, after the service, the pastor met them down front, and he said, now, 
I'll take you to your hotel. He said, I hope you don't mind. We've only booked one room and it's got two beds and we put you in the same room. Now, this was not all that uncommon in early days where they would, you know, save a little money and book one motel room, two beds, and two preachers could share the room and have some fellowship. But the young preacher thought, you've got to be kidding me. Now I only have to preach with this guy. I've got to live with him all week. This is horrible. Well, they got to the hotel and the preacher, was, the young preacher was so nervous and they got into the room and he said, Dr. Rice, I don't want to get in your way this week. I don't want to be a bother to you. I, I know you've got a lot of things to do with your, your ministry, and I just want to stay out of your way. He said, what time do you normally get up in the morning? Dr. I said, well, I normally get up at 5. The young preacher said, oh, that, that'll be fine. That's usually about the time I get up. That'll work out well. He said, Dr. Rice, what do you normally do when you first get up? Dr. Rice said, well, before I even take a shower or shave or any of those things, I like to read God's word, and spend some time with the Lord in prayer. The young preacher said, oh, that, that'll be great. He said, uh, that's great. He said, I, I like to get a little exercise. I like to kind of get the metabolism going early in the morning. So I like to go out and jog and walk a little bit and talk to the Lord during that time. And he said, so that'll work out good. We'll get up and you can have the room. You, you can have the room for your study and prayer. I'll vacate and get some exercise and, and, and that'll work out fine. So they went to bed and next morning the alarms went off at five o'clock. They both got up and Dr. Rice just swung his legs out of the bed and grabbed his Bible off the nightstand and began to read. The young preacher, he very quietly and quickly dressed for outdoors and and uh, went his way, went out and, and, and went for his exercise. About an hour and a half later, he came back and he had a key. So he opened the motel door. And in most hotels, and this is still true today, in most hotels, when you first come in the door, the restroom is either to the right or the left. I don't, I don't really know why that is, but that's pretty much common. It's not always the case in a suite or something like that. But in most motel rooms, you go in the door, the, the restroom's right there. Well, that was the case here. He opened the door. And the restroom door was to the to the to the very right of the of the hallway door. And when he walked in, the restroom door was open, the light was on, and Dr. Rice was in the restroom, and he was hunched over the commode and he was tearing up a piece of paper real fast and flushing it down the toilet. Well, this kind of shocked the young preacher. He wasn't sure what he was seeing. And he said, Dr. Rice, what what are you doing? And Dr. Rice, with his back to the young preacher, straightened up, turned toward him. His face was flushed, tears in his eyes. He said, oh, I was, uh, I was confessing my sins. And I always make a list of them all so that I don't forget any. Then after I've confessed each one, I destroy the list so no one else will find out how wicked I am. Wow. Maybe that's why the power of God rested upon someone like Dr. Rice. Maybe that's why he was able to raise a family for God. Maybe that's why he had such power in his writing and preaching. Are we good at confessing our sins? Because the devil's going to highlight those faults at the very moment we need to be a testimony. He'll heighten our fears. He'll highlight our faults. But notice thirdly, he will harass 
our faith. Now, the devil knows the Bible pretty well. If he hasn't read it, he's heard it preached a lot. And the devil knows that Hebrews 11.6 tells us as believers that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Now, if I was the devil, and I knew that it was impossible for you to please God, not improbable, not unlikely, but impossible to please God without faith, you know what I'd do? I'd harass your faith. Because if I could harass your faith and weaken your faith, you can't please God, and my job is accomplished. So the devil knows that we're to live by faith, not by sight. And the devil loves to harass our faith. Now, as we think about Peter, Peter had some pretty amazing faith. The first time Peter met Jesus, his brother Andrew brought him to Jesus and said, we found the Messiah, which is the Christ, and and, and Jesus meets Peter, changes his name to Peter at that point. It was Simon, your name's going to be called Peter. And, and so there's a little bit of an exchange there. Then a little while later, we see the second encounter with Jesus and Peter. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two brothers casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Andrew and his brother Simon. And Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And the Bible says, and they straightway, or immediately, straightway, they left their nets and followed him. Now just think about that for a minute. Here's Peter. He's met this man one time. He is believing that he is the Messiah. And now this Messiah, who's arrived on the scene, says to Peter, follow me. And Peter leaves his boat. He leaves his business. He leaves it all. And follows the Lord for the next three years. As far as we know, Peter is the only disciple that was married. Now, a lot of Jesus' ministry happened around that Sea of Galilee, but not all of it. I'm sure there were nights when Peter went home to be with his wife. I'm sure at the end of a busy ministry day, Peter was allowed to go home and be with his wife that night. But there were many nights where Jesus was nowhere near Galilee and Peter was with him. Just, just think for a minute about the faith that it would have taken for Peter to just leave his business, leave his boat, leave the fish for somebody else to sell, leave his wife, and just follow the Lord. Amazing faith. But I think the greatest example of Peter's faith was that night when Jesus told some of the disciples to get into a ship and go over to the other side, and he would meet them on the other side. He would go up in the mountain and pray, and the disciples got in a boat, and they began to cross the Sea of Tiberias. And as was the case often then and still today, a storm came up as they got about halfway across. And those storms on the Sea of Galilee can come up quickly, and they can be quite violent. And this particular storm was one of those violent storms. The rain is crashing down. The waves are coming over the side of the boat. The wind is howling. Now, a number of these men on board that boat, they were fishermen. They had been on that sea numerous times and had no doubt fought dozens of these kinds of storms. And they knew some things about how to get through it. 
They knew how to lighten the boat, perhaps adjust the sails. They, they knew what to do. But that night, that storm had their number. And, and they're afraid. And in the middle of their fear, they see somebody walking on the water. They think it's a ghost. Now, there's nothing worse than being scared and then seeing a ghost on top of that. And they're not sure who this guy is. And, 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 and John, he says, I, I, I think that's the Lord. And Peter, being the impetuous one, he, he cries out, Lord, if it be thou, bid me that I come unto thee on the water. And the Lord said, come. And Peter steps out of the boat. Now, I don't know anybody that's ever tried that. But Peter steps out of the boat. And remember, there's a storm going on. I used to do a little water skiing when I was younger. And, and I, but I like to go water skiing early in the morning when the, when the, when the lake was clear and smooth and, and like glass. You know, I wanted to make my own waves, my own, my own ripples. I didn't want a lot of choppy water when I was water skiing. I, I can see someone stepping out on water thinking they could walk on it if, it if it was smooth. But this water's not smooth. There, there's a storm going on. I remember when I first heard this story, it was in Sunday school, and the teacher showed us a flannel graph lesson of this thing. She had a boat, and she had Peter, and she had the Lord, and she had this, 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 this pic, these pictures. She was pasting on this flannel graph. And in that story, the water was calm. It was absolutely calm. But then I read the Bible. The water wasn't calm. <laughs> and the waves are coming over the side of the boat. The water is coming into the boat. The waves are, the waves are howling. The wind is howling, and, and the rain is falling. And, and then Peter begins to walk on the water. Now, we don't know how many steps he took. The flannograph lesson to, said two. But the Bible doesn't say. And Jesus was far enough away, they didn't know who he was. So maybe Peter took five, six, ten, twelve steps. We don't know. But he walked on water. Now, that would take some faith. Now, now, you're way ahead of me. You know the story. Peter gets his eyes off the Lord. He sees the wind boisterous and the waves, and he begins to sink. And, 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 and he said, Lord, save me. And, and Jesus immediately stretched forth his hand and caught him and said, Oh, ye of little faith. What did you say, Lord? Oh, ye of little faith? <laughs> Lord, you got that one wrong. Peter had great faith. No one's ever stepped out of a boat and walked on water before or since. What are you talking about? Oh, ye of little faith. Now, Jesus makes that statement three or four times in the New Testament. And if you'll look them up, I think you'll come to this conclusion. When Jesus said, oh, ye of little faith, he was not talking about the amount of faith, but the duration of faith. When I was in the land of Israel, our guide one day, we were a little bit ahead of the crowd to a place we were to see, and he stopped at a bush. This bush was about waist high, kind of round. He went over to it, took one of the branches, and he shook it over his hand. 
He held it toward me. His hand was covered with kind of a lime green dust. Like someone took powder and just threw it at his hand. Kind of a yellow lime green powder covered his hand. He said, John, do you know what this is? I said, no, sir. He said, John, this is the mustard tree. This is the mustard seed. Then he looked over his left shoulder and there was a mountain in the distance. And he looked back at me and he winked. And he walked away. Man, what a moment in my life. Jesus said, if you have the faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you can't tell the difference between a grain of mustard seed when there are seeds on your hand. They are indecipherable. They are so small. But if you have faith as the grain of a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, be thou removed, and it shall remove. You don't need a lot of faith. Our problem is the duration of faith. Remember in our text, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. See, Peter had great faith, but that faith was going to be tested over and over and over again. Why? Because the devil's going to harass our faith. You have great faith tonight. It took a lot of faith for you to get saved. You ever stop and think about that? Have you ever seen God? I don't think so, because the Bible says no man has seen God at any time. So none of us have seen God, but you've put your faith in him. You believe that he saved you. You believe you're on your way to heaven and not hell. That takes a lot of faith. You see, you have great faith. The question is, will your faith endure? Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Paul was able to say at the end of his life, I've kept the faith. Will your faith endure? If thou faint in the day of adversity, thy strength is small. May we pray tonight as the apostles increase our faith, not in amount. Sometimes you say, oh, I need more faith. I need more faith. All you need is a grain of mustard seed. You can move a mountain. But what we need to understand is we need faith to continue. We need a faith to keep going on when the pressure comes, when the persecution comes, when the temptations come, when the trials come, when the devil begins to beat against us in the storms of life. We need that faith to continue because the devil will harass our faith. Then finally, he will hinder our focus. If we follow Peter all the way to John chapter 21, he says in verse 3 to some of his disciples, friends, I go fishing. Now, when Peter said, I'm going fishing, he didn't mean I'm going to take a little time off tomorrow and get a little, little rest and recreation. When Peter said, I'm going fishing, he meant I'm going back to the life I had before Christ called me. In other words, he's quitting. He's tired. He's weary. It's not working out. It's not meeting his expectations. Something's happened here in Peter's life. And and he says, I'm going back to where I was before God called me. I'm going fishing. And the disciples said, we also go with thee. Be careful about your decisions. You're always influencing somebody else. 
We may think, well, it's my decision. Yeah, but it's your decision, but you're going to influence your children. You're going to influence your wife. You're going to influence your husband. You're going to influence your family. You're going to influence those at work. We all have an influence. So they go out and they went fishing all night and they caught nothing. They should have known that. Jesus said, without me, you can't do nothing. And that doesn't just apply to spiritual things. Without Christ, your marriage is going to be a wreck. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Your finances are going to go in the tank. Every year your life's going to fail without Christ because he's our all and in all. So, so they should have known they weren't going to catch anything. So they, they toil all night, they catch nothing. Now they're coming in as the day begins to break and there's somebody on the shore and he calls out to them, Children, have you any meat? In other words, have you caught anything? And they answered him, No. And he said, cast the net on the right side, and ye shall find. And I'm sure Peter's rolling his eyes thinking, who is this guy? I mean, we've been out all night. We know how to fish. We did this our whole life as professionals. We know how to throw the net. We know where the schools of fish are at the certain times of the night. They're just not there tonight. But prove him wrong. Throw it over. They throw it over now. The net is immediately filled with 153 fish. And John, again, the perceptive one, he says, it is the Lord. And Peter casts himself into the water. He girds his fishers coat about him because he was naked. Now, when the Bible says naked, it, it never means completely without clothes. They were just immodest. So he casts his fishers coat around him. He throws himself in the water and he comes to the shore. The disciples bring the net of fishes behind him. And when they get to shore, Jesus has a fire going there with some fish on the fire. And he says, come and die. They eat breakfast, and afterwards, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Now, the Bible is a book. You have to read a book. You can't watch a book. You can go home tonight and read your Bible. You can't go home and watch the Bible. You have to read the Bible. But you have to provide some video in your mind with the Bible to understand the Bible. And this is one of those cases because Jesus said, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? Well, what are the these? Jesus had to be pointing at something in that moment. We can't see it because it's just words. It's a book. But Jesus had to be pointing to something in that moment. So what are the these? Was he pointing to the other disciples around the fire? Peter, do you love me more than these guys? Was he pointing to some houses dotting the hillsides of Galilee? Peter, do you love me more than those houses? Well, I don't know what's in your video. But as the video rolls in my head, I think he's pointing at the fish in the fire. Or maybe over on the boat flopping on the nets. Peter, do you love me more than these? And he's not asking him, Peter, do you like me better than fried fish? He's saying, Peter, do you love me more than what this world has to offer you? Because a few hours ago, you said, I quit. I'm going back to what the world can give me. Your focus is off, Peter. I already know how I want to use you. Jesus didn't say all this to Peter at that moment, but God in his mind, he knew that, that Peter was the one chosen to preach on Pentecost. 
Peter was the one that would write uh, a couple of letters in the New Testament. Peter was the one that would be martyred for the cause of Christ. Jesus already knew what he was going to do with his life. But he said, Peter, before I can use you, i got to know something. Do you love me? Is your focus on me? The devil will try to hinder our focus. He'll try to get us distracted. The devil gets a lot of traction out of distraction. All he does is gets us to look. When the woman saw the tree was good for food. When Achan saw the Babylonish garment, the wedge of gold, the shekels of silver. Samson saw a woman of Timnath. Get her for me. David saw a woman washing. See, all the devil has to do is get you to look. That's why Jesus said in Luke 9, 62, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. It doesn't say no man having put his hand to the plow and going back. Remember Lot's wife. She didn't go back to Sodom. She just looked. Where are you looking tonight? Has the world got some attraction that's got your, your eye? Does the flesh have something inside you that, that's more valuable to you than God? Is there, is there some uh, compromise, some, something that the devil dangles in front of us that says, Hey, how about this? The proverb says, Let thine eyes look right on. Look not to the right or the left. Uh, ponder the path of thy feet. Keep your eyes focused on the author and finisher of our faith. Because the devil's going to hinder your focus. He'll heighten your fears. He'll highlight your faults. He'll harass your faith. He'll hinder your focus. General George Patton was the general of our allied forces during World War II. General Patton was an amazing leader. I don't know if General Patton was a Christian. There are some accounts that say that he had trusted Christ as Savior. But sometimes when you read his actions or his words, you would wonder if he knew the Lord. But he was an amazing leader. I've stood on the, at the grave of General George Patton there in Luxembourg, Europe. It's an amazing place. That military cemetery covers thousands of white crosses. They are amazing just to walk up down and much of the story of their life and how they died is on those crosses. And it's, it's, it's moving to realize that these men and women gave their lives for the freedom of the Western world over Hitler and his forces, World War II. When you stand at General Patton's grave, you stand right behind his grave, and you look out over the tens of thousands of these crosses. If you've seen military cemeteries, these white crosses are all in alignment. They're all lined up in a very straight line, no matter where you look. If you stand at General Patton's grave, every one of those crosses is in direct alignment to his grave. Every row comes to him. And they did that on purpose. To make it appear that even in their death, they were still under his command. It's a very moving place. General George Patton kept two books on his night shelf. And he read out of both of them every night. What were the books? Well, the first that he kept on his nightstand was his Bible. He read out of it every night. 
When Patton was asked, why do you read the Bible? He said, well, the Bible is a book of wisdom. and I need wisdom. So I read the Bible. What was the second book? The second book was entitled Rummel's Rules of War. Who was Rummel? Well, Rummel was the general of Adolf Hitler's army. He had written a book on the strategy of war. And Hitler read out of, or uh, uh, Patton read out of it every night. Why? Because he wanted to know how the enemy was thinking, how the enemy would attack. Now, God to us as Christians has given us one book, and in it, it contains wisdom on how to live for God. But in that same book, the Bible, God tells us how our enemy operates. And we would be wise to not be ignorant of those devices. Maybe all of them apply to each of us tonight, maybe one or two. Would you ask the Lord tonight to not let you succumb to those devices, to put up that shield of faith, to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked? Let's bow for prayer. Lord.